You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader of the News and Observer hosting this week. And with me are Colin Campbell of the North Carolina Insider and Lynn Bonner and special guest Greg Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. You've already forgotten my name. <laughs> Craig, Craig Jarvis. Greg, Greg, is that who is it? So Craig hasn't been on in a few episodes. And uh, Craig, tell him uh, what your uh, new assignment is that is keeping you away from uh, your uh, your many avid listeners at Domecast. Well, sure. I'm uh, I'm covering a, what used to be kind of a business beat, but now it's a little less traditional business. But it's it's commercial real estate, retail, and kind of the general concept of growth and development. And uh, there's a whole lot going on. I can I can tell you that, and it feels a lot less stressful than <laughs> than covering the state house. You have a lot of people who want to talk to you and have their news That's aired. Right. They all like us. They're all there. You know clamoring for our attention and anything we write would be great i don't think i've written a single complaint yet i feel 10 years younger. my blood pressure was <laughs> so we've got craig on to talk about uh, a uh, something he wrote about that has a, a an intersection with the legislature um, there's a new law that uh, deals with organized retail theft uh, and uh, Craig wrote about um, shoplifting and uh, or these organized theft rings this week. Um, so we'll talk about that uh, on this week's Domecast. We'll talk about uh, the upcoming uh, decision related to Confederate uh, monuments on the Capitol campus. Uh, and we'll talk about unaffiliated voters overtaking Republicans in the uh, uh, t- ranks of um, registered voters. Um, but first, Colin, uh, this week was the week that the uh, committee that's dealing with judicial redistricting met. Um, in addition to all the congressional and legislative redistricting, we've also got this effort in the legislature to redraw the districts of judges and um, DAs. So this came up during the regular session, and it resurfaced uh, with a hearing this week. So uh, what happened? Yeah, so this was the very first meeting of the Judicial Redistricting Committee. Uh, the person in charge of the committee named to chair it is Justin Burr, the representative from uh, Stanley County, uh, who first floated this proposal to redraw judicial districts back in June at the very end of the session, and it didn't quite uh, pick up a whole lot of traction initially uh, as the session was winding to a close. Uh, but now he's got this long committee process where he started out, uh, this is going to be sort of a weekly meeting thing. They've scheduled ones for the next couple of weeks, I think. Uh, but the first meeting, um, they just passed out essentially maps of the current judicial districts, which uh, some folks in the room mistakenly thought were revised versions of uh, Burr's proposal. But he stressed that, no, he has not released any new versions of the the tweaks that he says are coming to his maps based on some of the feedback he's gotten. Uh, so instead, the first meeting was pretty much just a history lesson. There was a professor from the UNC School of Government who came in um, and explained the history of how judges were selected in the judicial system in North Carolina dating back to the 1700s. Uh, he seemed very thrilled that uh, he, was, he was making jokes about how quickly he can clear out a cocktail party, and he seemed thrilled that he had been invited to uh, uh, give his uh, historical presentation to a variety of fairly powerful folks. Uh, but a f- couple interesting things he points he made was the uh, tension between 
judicial accountability and uh, judicial independence, that uh, every state is trying to get that balance just right, um, and that's sort of at the core of some of the discussions in North Carolina. So in a sense, that sort of hinted at um, something larger than simply redrawing the lines, which is what uh, Burr is proposing and what the House is looking at, and that's the uh, proposal we heard several months ago from uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice Mark Martin, who wants to go away from a judicial election process and into sort of a, a more um, separate selection process where judges would be appointed as opposed to elected um, in sort of a general election as they are now. Uh, that's something that, uh, as we understand, is getting some interest from the Senate side of things. Uh, Phil Berger's chief of staff, Jim Blaine, has visited some uh, judges groups and has been discussing the idea of, of perhaps doing a process where uh, you would have uh, sort of an independent group of experts that would look at judges' qualifications. They would submit a list of uh, potential names to perhaps the legislature, perhaps somebody else. Uh, the legislature or another government agency would make their uh, selections, and then Roy Cooper, the governor, would make the appointments. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see which of these two ideas went out in the end. Um, there's also the possibility they sort of both could proceed as ideas, and then uh, we could have the uh, judicial districts perhaps as a uh, something would happen if the uh, selection process didn't change, because that would, I believe, require a uh, constitutional amendment. So voters would have to approve uh, switching to a non-elected uh, judge system, particularly for the uh, superior and uh, district court levels and perhaps at other levels as well. Okay. And what was the reception of these uh, judicial maps if they do go ahead with redrawing the districts? Well, it was interesting. Um, a couple of the legislators asked certain pointed questions to Burr about it during this meeting. And of course, the Democrats are very opposed to uh, redrawing these maps. They feel like this is uh, designed essentially to gerrymander the judiciary so that more Republicans get elected. Uh, Burr's response to that in, in a number of interviews recently has been, well, currently the maps are gerrymandered so that uh, Democrats win and hasn't been updated in decades, so we need to go in and, and fix it so that you know people have a, a more fair shot at uh, having a voice in, in who their judges are. Um, we also heard some fairly pointed questions this week from Republicans, including I think one of the Republican lawmakers was concerned about process for redrawing judicial lines. Of course, with the uh, legislative redistricting process recently, there was sort of a multi-step process. They identified their criteria for drawing the lines, then they sent their map drawers out to draw lines based on that criteria, and then they brought back the proposed maps. So there were questions from Republicans about, well, are we going to set a criteria before these maps come out? And uh, Justin Burr was pretty noncommittal about that. So you kind of have to wonder if he's uh, just kind of sort of do these maps proposed by himself and not go through the process of actually setting a criteria and getting some sort of consultant like Tom Hoffler to actually draw the maps. And I should say, as we're uh, recording, uh, we uh, um, uh, Anne Blythe is reporting on a statement from Governor Roy Cooper that uh, uh, responds to the idea of appointing judges rather than electing them. And uh, he was, uh, probably no surprise, very uh, negative about the idea that the legislature would have some role in appointing judges. And he um, said he'd rather have the uh, the people, the voters, continue to elect judges that have the legislature. I wonder what his opinion, vote. though, is on if, if he was put in charge of the appointments and not the legislature, if that would be okay on, on his end. He might feel differently about that one. 
Uh, well, so Lynn, next week we've got a, uh, a potential decision or at least discussion by a um, somewhat, I think, obscure panel of people who are going to be deciding whether to move the statues off of the Capitol campus uh, that uh, the Confederate statues, I should say, off of the Capitol campus. And uh, Friday, after we domecasted last week, uh, Governor Cooper put out an announcement asking them to take action. So what does the governor want uh, this historical commission to do? Right. Uh, the governor wants the historical commission to um, agree to move three Confederate statues from the Capitol grounds to the Bentonville, Bentonville battlefield. Um, in Johnston County. Um, a couple of months ago, right after Charlottesville, um, Cooper uh, said he was going to ask um, cultural resources to come up with a plan for uh, some of the um, Confederate statues um, under state control, and, and this appears to be it. Um, we don't know yet how much that will cost, and we don't know whether... Um, the Historical Commission will go along. We n know that there's um, a, uh, we have this 11-member board. Um, Cooper has appointed three of those people, reappointed one. The rest have been appointed by Governor McCrory. Um, and they're working within the limits of a law that's somewhat vague about whether they actually can move or uh, agree to move those statues to um, to Johnston County. The law says that this, when statues are going to be moved, they have to be moved to a place of similar prominence, I believe. So I guess the question would be whether um, the, the battlefield is as prominent as the Capitol grounds. Hmm. Um, and they... Uh, I mean, who basically gets to decide? If they decide to move these statues, would it just be a court uh, that would decide whether they acted correctly, or is there some other layer of uh, approval for moving them? Is it basically just up to the Historical Commission? There's another commission that needs to, uh, you know, agree to this because um, it is the Capitol grounds are a, a, a historic site, so um, Cooper has also, or his administration also, has also asked um, uh, for uh, approval from another group um, to do this. Uh, so, you know, from this point on, you know, I don't really know what's going to happen um, because there is a question whether, you know, the law, whether the commission can do this under the law. Um, you know, that Cooper uh, weighed in on Silent Sam as well, saying that um, the university could um, remove that statue, and the chancellor decided not to because um, she didn't feel like they, they could really do it, even though Cooper said that they could. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's all really an open question from this point. Yeah, so it's interesting to see how this is going to proceed just because, as Lynn said, it's a, it's a little bit unclear the Historic Commission's role. Um, it'd also be interesting to see if, if they do decide in favor of Cooper, and I think most of them are actually McCrory appointees, even though the governor appoints all members of the Historic Commission. Um, 
whether someone's going to jump in there with a lawsuit and then a judge would decide ultimately. Uh, we haven't heard a whole lot about Cooper's plan from legislative leaders. Uh, Berger put out a statement uh, that kind of criticized his timing. He uh, announced this on Friday afternoon ahead of the hurricane, and so Berger sort of took him to task for uh, being focused on that issue instead of the hurricane, but didn't really come out uh, in strong opposition to what Cooper was actually trying to do. Uh, we haven't heard anything from Tim Moore's office this week. Um, there's also a lot of sort of unanswered questions about Cooper's plan. Um, they don't have a cost estimate. They told me they're still working on that. Um, there's not really a sense for exactly how it would work moving these statues. It's been a really expensive proposition in other places. New Orleans, I think, spent like $2 million on uh, moving the statues there. This could conceivably be somewhat similar because there's that huge one on Hillsborough Street that's one of the ones they want to move. Uh, there's also been some discussion on the selection of statues. Uh, he picked three. There are, I think, a total of five that have some questionable historical roles. Uh, he's not wanting to move the statue of Governor Vance, who was the governor both during and after the Civil War and also fought for the Confederacy. And he also doesn't want to move the statue of Governor uh, Aycock, who was uh, a pretty known white supremacist uh, involved in some pretty uh, nasty stuff around the turn of the century. Of course, was would have been a child during the Civil War, but uh, was presiding over a pretty ugly period of North Carolina's racial history. Uh, he gets to stay put, and uh, the line from the governor's office about that was they wanted to select statues that were ex sort of explicitly monuments to the Confederacy, and I guess the, the individuals here uh, outside of those the three that they're moving uh, aren't 100% uh, Confederate in, in what they represent. Okay. Uh, Craig, you wrote a story this week with the a fantastic headline, Those Levi's you bought on eBay may have been stolen by a drug-addicted shoplifter. It sounds it really like everything. it couldn't be true, but you know, I guess you could have put in a few more qualifiers, but it actually is true. <laughs> it pretty well sums up the thing. Uh, this is a story that I, I guess I had uh, straddled from my previous beat and my current beat, as well as one that reaches back a long time. About 20 years ago, I wrote a story about a big uh, uh, fencing operation that worked out of, operated out of Wake County, and it had a lot of legs, as they say, because it uh, involved a lot of politicians and uh, in law enforcement in particular uh, that were unloading, they said un unknowingly, um, truckloads of stolen property. Uh, and uh, anyway, it's a big, long, involved story. I was a little surprised that there's still uh, there's still a really prevalent operation. This is a business model that's been successful. Uh, so, you know, it's a, like a multi-billion-dollar industry nationwide that relies on drug-addicted shoplifters to basically come into stores, particularly pharmacies, but also grocery stores, other stores, literally with lists of things that they're supposed to pick up, like infant formula or uh, jeans of a certain color or size or and they just are pretty adept at <clears throat> spending very little time swooping into stores and getting out of there. <clears throat> and then this this merchandise is, <clears throat> excuse me, makes its way up to a uh, throughout several layers of fences. It's being sold and resold, and and ends up in these pretty large scale um, uh, distribution operations. So um, that's still a going enterprise. It's gotten worse. Law enforcement in general hasn't done too much. It's kind of becomes a federal prosecution case if it's big enough, and we've seen some of those. Um, but uh, so this year, the uh, state legislature, at the behest of the Retail Merchants Association, updated the law on uh, 
an organized retail theft, kind of expanded who can be prosecuted, increased the penalty and that, and that kind of thing. And, uh, and reacting to a couple new things they're seeing. One, they're seeing more of this online. It used to be the fences would have to find stores that would buy this. There's kind of these secondary markets that may or may not be legitimate or, you know, are they really just a cover for fencing uh, or is there an industry where you buy back liquidated goods, that kind of thing. Um, but they're seeing more and more of this stuff pop up online now, like at uh, eBay and Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace, I think it is. And people are selling gift cards. Yeah, and that's uh, the other new thing. Yeah, yeah they're, 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 they're saying they, they're, they're calling it e-fencing. In fact, that's how it's defined in the law. They um, uh, basically are, you know, take stolen merchandise, return it for a store credit, which is not new, but then taking these cards, uh, store credit cards, and selling those online. So the retail merchants, the brick-and-mortar stores, are saying, you know, there's a lot of things you can do to, to uh, keep an eye out for, for this stuff, you know, just a few simple steps. And it sounds like part of, the, part of what's fueling this <coughs> is, uh, and part of why it's gotten attention from the legislature, is the opioid epidemic. Exactly. They're seeing more and more of that. I, I guess the opioid is kind of igniting interest across a lot, of, a, a lot of issues. But this is one of them. They're seeing more, uh, you know, drug addicts in general, uh, particularly opioid abusers, um, that are in there every day, accumulating shop loads, uh, shopping bag loads of, of stuff they can turn around. I mean, literally every day they're doing it. This, there was a prosecution um, that originated out of Gastonia a couple of years ago in which the Gastonia police were uh, picking up shoplifters, realizing they were drug dealers. They got them to turn over on, their, on who they were fencing to. It was some woman in Denver, North Carolina, and they set up surveillance there and saw all day long people showing up with this, you know, bag loads of stuff. And from there, it gets kind of goes through a cleaning operation to remove store tags and make sure it's not uh, damaged goods. And um, so it's it's really quite an enterprise. Interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see how they uh, how this law works and and who they end up uh, whether it's a successful in in cracking down on this. It starts in December. Or takes effect in December. So we'll see. Um, and Lynn, you had a really fascinating story along with our arts writer David McConey about uh, a playwright whose uh, play I think just opened, uh, whose uh, play actually deals with issues um, surrounding same-sex marriage and whose father is a, a former legislator. Right. I've waited uh, two years to talk on this podcast about TV and plays. So here we go. Yeah, there's um, a play that's opened um, at Playmakers. Uh, the author is uh, Becca Brunstetter, who happens to be uh, the daughter of Pete Brunstetter, a former state legislator who was uh, a heavyweight in the state Senate when um, the legislature um, voted to put um, the uh, the definition of marriage as one man, one woman on the ballot. Um, through a quirk of, um, you know, our legislature, um, uh, Bruns- Pete Brunstetter's uh, name will always be enshrined as the sole uh, sponsor of that bill, although, you know, that wasn't really what was originally in the bill that he he wrote. But um, yeah, why is that? I was oh well, um, what, he what? it's one of those uh, gutting and reamending deals oh, okay. where he passed a bill that had nothing to do with gay marriage. Uh, got over to the house and in the special session, they took out what he had about Woodson Salem water and sewer or whatever it was and put in the put in the definition of in marriage. A minor amendment yeah, to yeah, it. it's a it's a minor change. 
technically. Yes. <laughs> sent it back, and uh, then it got on the ballot with, with his name on it. Um, but uh, he still does not think that uh, – he, he still believes in the definition of marriage as one man, one woman. Uh, and his daughter, the playwright, disagrees with that. Um, and uh, so we have this um, play about – a baker who was asked to um, produce a cake for a gay wedding. Um, we spoke to uh, both of them about that this week, and I, I talked to, be, to Pete. Um, and, uh, yes, he says they still don't agree, but uh, he was absolutely uh, effusive about his daughter. She's actually a prolific and accomplished playwright, and... Um, and also is uh, on the writing staff for the TV show This Is Us. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was, you know, absolutely gushing. I really didn't know that he had that setting. and But uh, said that he um, couldn't wait to see the play and couldn't wait to see his daughter. He's, she's going to be here um, toward the end of the run. But uh, he talked it up so much that I went home and, and bought a ticket. So, uh, yeah, so we have uh, the arts uh, intersecting with um, state politics. I'll be interested to hear what you think of it. It sounded like it's kind of a nuanced portrayal of, of the uh, both the couple and the um, cake baker. Yes, um, and Pete says that that's really what she does well. And apparently, while she was doing some rewrites, she would call and ask for some you know views on his position. So, I I guess it, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Okay. And, oh, of course, there's a similar case that the Supreme Court will uh, consider. Exactly. So, um, Colin, there's uh, a uh, change that we were all kind of expecting, but um, at least I didn't know exactly when to expect it, which was that um, Republicans and Democrats uh, are no longer the top two groups of registered voters in the state. And uh, so what's what's happened? Yeah, so sometime between uh, the 1st of September uh, in this past week or so, uh, the numbers have shifted. They've been shifting over time, um, and so it was just a matter of time before the number of unaffiliated, because those are growing as a percentage of the state's uh, voter registrations, would overtake Republicans as the number two most popular uh, voter registration. So now instead of Democrats being number one, Republicans number two, and affiliates number three. It's Democrats still number one, but unaffiliated are more common than Republicans, uh, which on its face looks like bad news for Republicans. Um, but when I talked to Dallas Woodhouse from the NCGOP, he had a different take on it. Um, he sort of delved a little more deep into the numbers and pointed out that uh, the gap between the number of Democrats and the number of Republicans has actually been uh, becoming a lot more narrow over the last few years. And the numbers, in, in fact, do bear out his interpretation that um, Democrats used to have a far greater advantage in voter registrations over Republicans than they do now. Uh, and so Dallas views that as uh, growth in the Republican Party that even while in general the shift at a for a high level is towards unaffiliated, there's also growth in the number of people as a percentage of the state who choose to register as Republicans. And what about unaffiliated? Do they tend to break for one party, or is it just up in the air? You know, I think it's a fairly even mix. I mean, uh, one of the things Dallas mentioned was that unaffiliated aren't necessarily all moderates. A lot of them are, they lean one way or the other, and they typically vote one way or the other. Um, and so I think a lot of them have broken towards Republicans over the years in recent elections, uh, because if you, 
had them evenly split, Republicans would be losing everything at the statewide level. And of course, that hasn't been the case. It's interesting. I heard uh, <clears throat> Michael Bitzer, the uh, Catawba political science professor, talking about this. And he thought it was, to some extent, a demographic and age thing that the millennials tend to vote or tending to register anyway, center left, whereas boomers were more center right. I think it's interesting that people are less willing to identify a party. I wonder how that's going to change elections and campaigns going forward. Um, but yeah, as as Craig said, uh, there's just because people don't say what they are. I mean, they do have uh, various proclivities. Um, yeah. And there's an advantage in North Carolina to registering as unaffiliated because when it comes primary time, you can pick the primary that you want to vote in. So sometimes if there's, you know, not a contested Democratic primary uh, and you're unaffiliated, you, you might never actually vote Republican in the general, but it might be more fun to you to uh, vote in the Republican primary because there's a choice and you can pick which candidate you find least objectionable. Yeah, I wonder why more people don't register um, unaffiliated because you, when you are unaffiliated, you have that choice. And you can, yeah, party ballot, or if there's um, a, a ballot question, you can pick nothing. And it seems like there's a privacy component too, because if you don't want people to know any that bad about you, you can just register as unaffiliated. Yeah, I mean, most most of us as journalists register as unaffiliated, so that you know no, nothing of our political views show up on the internet. Uh, of course, now the even though you get to choose your your party affiliation, the State Board of Elections website, for whatever reason, considers your ballot choice a public record. So that shows up online. So is that something to be wary of if you, you know, you think you're going to register unaffiliated um, and no one's going to know which way you lean, but you vote in the Republican primary every year, people will be able to know at least that much. Okay. Uh, one other thing we should talk about before we head to headliner of the week, and that is, uh, Colin, your story that you had uh, in today's Insider. Um, about a uh, blog post or um, website entry, uh, I guess, uh, out of, was it Greensboro that got picked yeah, up by uh, a... Yeah, sort of a triad conservative blog uh, that got picked up by a website called carolinaplothound.com. This is a website, uh, if you're familiar with Drudge Report, it looks very, very similar, but it's all focused on uh, North Carolina, fairly far-to-the-right conservative uh, news stories and headlines and um, opinion articles. Uh, but what, when you go to carolinaplothound.com, you won't see who owns it anywhere listed on the site. Well, the, person, the group that owns it is the conservative Civitas Institute, which, of course, gets a lot of money from Art Pope and various other sort of big-name uh, conservative donors in this state. Uh, they bought it from, uh, I think, the founder of the website a couple years back um, and employ the person who edits it. Um, but anyway, this, this site was catching some flack this week because of the article in this triad conservative blog that was about uh, Attorney General Josh Stein's decision to join a lawsuit that challenged President Trump over his decision to end the DACA uh, immigration program. Um, and the line of attack on Stein was kind of unusual in this. Of course, Stein's been getting criticism for the right, from the right for this decision. Uh, but this particular blogger attributed the fact that Stein is Jewish and that uh, people who are Jewish are inclined towards uh, policy, I think in the, the way this guy described it, policy that reduces the number of uh, white Christians in the Western world, something to that effect. So it was... Didn't make a whole lot of sense. Didn't make a whole lot of yeah. sense, but it was clearly had some anti-Semitism to the way it was written. And this was linked as the sort of lead uh, item on this Carolina Plothound website. So uh, the liberal group NC Policy Watch had a uh, big, long article about um, 
this blog post and, and uh, Civitas's connection to this website, calling on Civitas to disavow this particular article and this particular uh, viewpoint. So far, we haven't heard anything from Civitas. Uh, they haven't responded to Policy Watch. Uh, Francis DeLuca from Civitas didn't respond to my phone calls, emails yesterday. Uh, so they've been pretty uh, silent on this issue. Do they take it down? Um, it's not still on there, but it's always hard to tell with these aggregator sites if they took it down because they didn't want it up there anymore or if it just got bumped down because they had other news articles they were promoting the next day. Uh, but it's not there as of now. Um, I will note that the plot hound, we, we didn't write about this before because we were a little concerned about uh, the plot hound site uh, going after one of our own, but there was a, a essentially racist article that they'd linked to about a, a departing in and o editor who was African-American uh, last year. Um, so uh, plot hound certainly no stranger to controversy and, and putting some very uh, controversial stuff up there. Okay. Okay, well, I think that's it for uh, the main part of the show, but we'll be right back with Headliner of the Week. Please stay with us. Did you know that North Carolina judges used to ride on horseback across the state to deliver justice? Today, there are more than 1,000 judicial representatives in our state. And through the NCAOC Speakers Bureau, you can request to have a representative speak at your event. Representatives are ready to inform your community about the importance of the North Carolina judicial system, and their visits are completely free. We can't promise they'll show up on a horse, though. Visit celebrate.ncourts.org to request a speaker for your event. And welcome back to Domecast. And now it's time for Headliner of the Week, everybody's favorite segment where we discuss the most important influential person place thing in the news. Uh, Lynn Bonner, why don't you go first? Who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going with Vi Lyles, who uh, was the surprise winner of the Democratic primary for Charlotte Mayor this week. Um, she won the primary outright, uh, no need for a runoff. And the magnitude of the win was a surprise even to people in her camp who thought they uh, they were headed for a runoff. So, um, you know, uh, Roberts was the um, uh, the incumbent and the clear favorite. Uh, I think this um, took everybody by surprise. So I'll go for Vi Lyles. Okay. And, of course, Roberts was a, a vocal, vocal proponent of the um, Charlotte uh, bathroom ordinance, but I think Lyles also, as a member of the city council, um, supported it, right? Yes. So, Okay, Vi Lyles in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Craig Jarvis, who's your headliner of the week? Well, I haven't been as directly involved in politics, as you know, as I had been, so I may uh, you may have to help me through this one, but it caught my eye that uh, Tom Tillis came out uh, this week in favor of uh, getting rid of some of the roadblocks to marijuana research, saying it's a national issue, we need to figure it out, kind of like, uh, kind of like a uh, FDA sort of thing. So Tom Tillis. Okay, Senator Tom Tillis, who uh, he was co-sponsor, but the sponsor was Senator Orrin Hatch of this bill, and um, the release was uh, from Orrin Hatch announcing this bill was just riddled with pot puns. Uh, it was like saying it's high time to do this, and if I can be blunt, we should do this. <laughs> Sounds and like Sean Hahn wrote I, the I press hope release. We can. <laughs> <laughs> the libertarian <laughs> candidate who made no who made no uh, apologies for smoking pot. <laughs> so Senator Tom Tillis in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, Colin Campbell, who's your headliner? 
Well, I'm going with uh, State Representative Mike Clampett, who uh, had the distinction this week of hosting uh, the possibly most awkward uh, town hall meeting uh, in recent North Carolina politics. This was a uh, he, he's a Republican from out in the western side of the state, so he'd held a uh, town hall meeting to hear from his constituents in uh, Haywood County, um, and the Smoky Mountain News uh, attended that and wrote up a story that we republished in the Insider this week. Uh, it was attended by about eight or ten people, so there's this great picture of this big auditorium that he had rented out for this, and uh, him sitting, standing on a row of chairs in front of a single row of chairs with people in them, and apparently it was not a very friendly crowd towards uh, Representative Clampett. Uh, at one point, someone brought out a picture of Clampett standing with some uh, Confederate reenactors who had the stars and bars and uh, suggested that he was uh, racist by being associated with these folks. Of course, Clampett, I think, has already made a fairly uh, public statement uh, in defense of Confederate monuments, saying he doesn't want to see them taken down. So he was called a racist there. His response was to tell a story about uh, how he had uh, fought a push to fire or discipline an African-American firefighter when he was working for the Charlotte Fire Department. And because he'd stuck it up for that coworker, he felt that made him not a racist. And someone else responded, no, you're still a racist, to which point he was apparently, uh, according to the Smoky Mountain News report, near to tears uh, and was, was apparently very upset that this person, no matter what he said, still viewed him as a racist. So uh, for uh, standing up in a very awkward, uncomfortable situation um, and uh, I guess sticking to his guns, uh, Mike Clampett is my pick this week. Okay. I'm not sure how many of them are, are doing uh, town halls. Yeah, so that uh, might be fairly un unusual. Yeah, there's a few state lawmakers that do town halls in their districts. Um, it's not super frequent. Um, and sometimes they get a good turnout and sometimes they don't. It kind of depends on, you know, which groups mobilize to uh, come out and uh, attend these things. Because a lot of these guys aren't super well known even in their own districts. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, Representative Mike Clampett in the hat for headliner of the week, uh, along with Senator... Tom Tillis and Councilwoman by Lyles. I'm going to go with Lyles, uh, Lynn's pick. Um, it'll be interesting to see how somebody who's potentially uh, maybe less uh, of a bomb thrower, I guess, than Jennifer Roberts um, will interact with the legislature if she becomes uh, mayor. She's still got a um, general election to face against a Republican. Um, but um, we won't have Jennifer Roberts there as sort of a, a foil for um, Republican leaders in the legislature. Um, so uh, for Lynn Bonner, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader, and thanks for listening to Domecast. Catch us next week. You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.